0: This is the East TraumaCast.
1: Welcome to TraumaCast. Thank you to Humanetics for their generous, unrestricted grant to support the Online Education Committee and TraumaCast. Welcome back to the next edition of TraumaCast. I can't believe the summer has flown by and we have not had a chance to uh, present a TraumaCast since May. Our last TraumaCast in May was with David Skrupa, who's with us today. It was very well received and David has graciously agreed to come back and talk to us about some clinical scenarios in uh, vascular trauma, as well as some vascular scenarios we see in the ICU and acute care surgery. New to the TraumaCast is uh, guest moderator, Lucy. I will have her introduce herself in just a moment. What you're gonna hear over the next uh, few months to year is many members of the online education committee would like to get involved with TraumaCast. So we'll have some guest appearances and we'll have some repeat appearances. I think we'll add a a different flavor, a different voice and allow us to bring some more TraumaCast to the audience. As always, if you have any questions or have any suggestions or any feedback from any of our uh, productions, please see us at the, the Twitter, East underscore Traumacast, and leave your comments. We'll start off with uh, introductions. David, let's start with you, our guest, if you could let everybody know who you are and where you're from.
2: So I'm David Skarupa, and I'm an acute care surgeon at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville.
1: Excellent. And then a voice from the past you've heard before, DT. Could you uh, welcome back, and if you could let everyone know who you are.
0: Hi, Carrie. I'm Aditi Kapil. I'm at Yale New Haven,
1: New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, first-time TraumaCast moderator, Lucy. Go ahead and introduce yourself.
3: Hi, I'm Lucy Rangvorva, and I am also at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven,
1: Connecticut. Welcome, and uh, welcome to the TraumaCast. All right, the last time we spoke with David, we kind of left off our last scenario is when should we use a hybrid room, and is it worth it? And we wanted to just kind of pick up that conversation. Uh, David, tell us your thoughts about a hybrid room.
2: Yeah. So yeah, last time we talked, it uh, just for those of you that haven't didn't listen to the first one or did and may not remember, we we left off with talking about a hybrid room. And at the at U of Health in Jacksonville, we don't have a hybrid room, and so we've for years managed vascular uh, trauma back in the, with Rick Freiberg and Jim Dennis without a hybrid room, and obviously it's been a and we can still do that. And it's been a, an ongoing debate in the literature, and I'm familiar with many institutions having not only a hybrid room, but multiple hybrid rooms. And I think that the, it does have a role, and its, its exact utility is still evolving. And I think that it's probably more than a hybrid room per se, but actually the training of the modern-day surgeon who's going to manage vascular injury. And I think it's really been, well, uh, a recent article about that, about beyond the crossroads and about who's going to take care of vascular injury management. And I think one institution who's really on the forefront of that is the shock trauma group, who are there training the the surgeon to get the endovascular skills to be able to do both, whether there is a hybrid room or not, or if not a hybrid room, using a C-arm and still doing endovascular techniques. And I think that's something for those of us who are interested in vascular injury management to not only uh, keep reading, but keep your eyes open and uh, ear to the ground on what's coming out of that Baltimore program and some of the other programs that are trying to emulate that uh, and train the next generation of vascular surgeons and acute care surgeons.
1: It was pretty impressive when I was at at Chakshama, there was a team that was on call for significant vascular trauma, and they were fully trained vascular surgeons and trauma surgeons, and some of them were also critical care um, intensivists, and their skill set was just, it would blow me away. I, w- I wish we could create multiple of those and be able to have them in every institution. If you don't have somebody that's yes. that skilled, um, how much do you think a trauma surgeon uh, at say level one academic trauma center should be taking on when it comes to angios and hybrid rooms, or should we we'd be really just deferring this to our vascular colleagues?
2: I think if one is not familiar with the hybrid room technology, then they really should be deferring to one who is. Alternatively, there's the C-arm and the wires, and I agree with you. the The skill set of and the technical competency that these surgeons who are melding the acute care surgery and vascular surgery to become these uh, such omnipotent uh, individuals, intensivist surgeons and vascular surgeons. So I think it one it starts with just a general interest in vascular injury management or vessel disruption management, and then uh, from there deciding if if one has the the skill set and is stayed up with the technology. And I think that's been one of the one of the questions that keeps being asked is as to how does one maintain their skill set outside of major centers such as Shock Trauma that is seeing close to 9,000 traumas a year and has the volume for one to truly do both vascular and acute care surgery and do the endovascular. And I think that that's something that's probably going to have to get worked out probably at not only at the institutional levels, but the, with the American College of Surgeons and the Society of Vascular Surgery.
1: All right, let's move on to our uh, clinical cases. I'm going to start with the case that uh, Aditi had, which is every intensivist's worst nightmare about central lines.
0: This is a case that no trauma surgeon or general surgeon wants to ever admit to, but putting a central line in the artery. You know, it's a common thing. We put central lines in pretty commonly in the, in the trauma bay or in the OR or the ICU, of course. What would you do, David, if you get the phone call? Or what would you suggest to the trauma surgeon who gets takes a look at the X-ray and they have a subclavian artery line or, even worse, a carotid line with a triple lumen?
2: Yeah, so I would say one, just leave it for now, and I'd go see the patient, and we'll go with the subclavian line. If it's a triple lumen, the the size of that's about a seven French, and in general, the options for managing this would be three. One, hold pressure, pull and hold pressure, or surgery, cut down and repair the vessel after identifying the injury, or an endovascular approach. For the subclavian, holding or pulling the catheter and removing it as long as the patient is not going to be um, anticoagulated would be probably an okay maneuver. I'd say for the carotid artery, it's a little different just because of the potential stroke risk. And seven French is really somewhat the maximum size where one would pull a catheter and hold pressure and not use a per close device or cut down and close it. So I would say if it was a carotid, I'd leave it in place, plan to uh, remove it in the operating room under direct visualization and suture closed. Now, femoral artery, I think that's seven French is something commonly used. And in fact, uh, whether one believes in it or not, the Reboa catheter, uh, one of the Reboa catheters is a seven French that is designed to be removed and then just hold pressure um, so it doesn't have to have a cut down as long as it's placed in the uh, common femoral artery. So that would be my approach to a central line in the artery. Now with ultrasound, it should be pretty free- infrequent in uh, 2020.
0: All these things you never know when, you, especially in a difficult patient who's crashing that sometimes I've seen it happen. And it's good to always know the management when you're the trauma surgeon or the ICU attending in the middle of the night, especially for our residents and fellows who are mostly putting in our lines. Hey, David, how do you
1: hold pressure when you pull a triple lumen out of the uh, subclavian artery?
2: So that would be just uh, direct pressure, uh, really bringing the artery up against the the clavicle Mm -hmm. and holding pressure. And uh, and I would hold it for somewhere around 15, 20 minutes, just hold pressure. And it should stop as long as the patient is not coagulopathic or going to be anticoagulated.
0: David, are you pinching around the clavicle?
2: Pinching around the clavicle, yes.
1: All right, Lucy, you have an interesting case about a popliteal artery injury. Yeah, so this is a
3: young gentleman who presented after a motorcycle accident, um, common here in the summertime, and uh, he he had a decreased GCS in the trauma bay, uh, which was found to be due to a subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, of small size, but he also had a dissection of the popliteal artery, which we picked up uh, after he had no palpable or dopplerable pulse in the trauma bay. Um, How would you approach uh, this kind of blunt popliteal injury?
2: So there are two major ways to approach the popliteal artery. So now we have a defined or definite pulse discrepancy. Have we already localized it to the popliteal artery because of external trauma? Or do we have some sort of imaging?
3: Yeah, uh, seen on CT angiogram.
2: So I think that there are two ways to approach this. One, the modern vascular surgeon or someone who's endovascular inclined might um, entertain an endovascular approach. However, I would say that a direct exposure and repair in an open fashion would be the uh, definitive and best approach. And uh, there are two ways to approach the popliteal artery. One of the medial incision that uh, actually takes down or cuts the pes so those are the muscles, uh, the sartorius, gracilis, and semi And fully expose the popliteal artery above the knee and below the knee. And not only the artery, but the vein. There are often associated injuries. And then actually do a uh, interposition graft of preferably vein from the contralateral side to repair this. There may be an associated hematoma or clot that we can see externally. To help us localize where exactly that vessel is injured, I would say that medial approach provides the best exposure. Uh, the posterior approach uh, can be done as well. It's just it's somewhat limited because it is in the to the popliteal area. So we really have to be certain that that is essentially the only injury and that we can definitely access it uh, through that posterior approach with the patient supine as opposed, a uh, prone as opposed to supine.
1: Walk me through this as though I was a uh, junior resident. So I'm in a trauma center. I need to get uh, access to the popliteal. So how do I position the patient? You, you'd mentioned some muscles that I haven't looked at probably since uh, fellowship. Uh, just kind of walk me through the basic steps of how I'd get control of this injury.
2: So definitely the patient's going to be supine. Uh, I'd have the patient prepped really from chin to toes and this is, I'm sorry.
1: I'm doing a knee, a knee exposure and I want to prep them from the the chin.
2: Well, this is a trauma patient. So I would say it'd definitely be a trauma, full trauma prep and exposure. (laughs) We never know what we're going to get into. And the classic is chin to knees. However, we're going to need to do a completion angiogram so I would like to have both lower extremities prepped all the way through to the toenails. And uh, this would be a medial incision along the, uh, uh, just proximal to the knee and a inferior incision to the knee. That's going to take down the semi or the po- access, the posterior fossa and the uh, take down the, the gastrocnemius off the and the uh, soleus off the tibia. And then what, what's commonly done in, in in elective practice is this is a bypass. However, in the trauma setting to get the best exposure, one's going to really need to take down the pes anserinus. And those are those three tendons or tendons associated with muscles of the sartorius, gracilis, and semitendinosus to really expose that palpiteal artery. And I would take those cut transectos uh, far enough off the bone so that they can be reapproximated, And that really gives us complete exposure of the popliteal vessels above the knee, in the fossa, and below the knee to fully expose and evaluate the artery and the vein.
1: And when you said contralateral uh, vein, you were speaking about the, uh, the saphenous, correct? The saphenous is strong. So, yes, yeah, the contralateral
2: pressure. greater saphenous vein, yes. And then I would definitely do a completion angiogram to make sure that we have a three vessel runoff uh, all the way through the ankle and evaluate the pulse postoperatively.
3: I was wondering if there's uh, an associated bony injury, as there often are. Um, do you prefer to do this before the orthopedists come in and do their portion of it, the procedure?
2: So, with an associated injury, I would revascularize the extremity with at least a shunt. So then the orthopedics can get the extremity out to length and then do the definitive procedure. So essentially decreasing our warm ischemia time as soon as possible.
3: And in our patient, we had a particular conundrum, which was that he did have a contraindication uh, to systemic anticoagulation, uh, which is fairly common in trauma patients. Is there any words of wisdom that you can give us about how much anticoagulation in an injury like this takes to, um, to get a definitive repair?
2: Yeah, so the, the anticoagulation is not a substitute for technical precision. And systemic anticoagulation really is not mandatory. Uh, heparinized, uh, heparinized saline administered regionally or locally is really all one need. So in this case, if there's an associated head injury or any other reason that would be a contraindication for systemic anticoagulation, local heparin flushes during the repair and technical precision will be fine uh, and actually have a great result.
3: So another variety of this might be a transectional extremity wound, uh, a bullet wound that might go through and through the popliteal vessels. Would you approach that any differently?
2: I would not. That would be my preferred approach for the patient in the um, is the medial approach. So the blast
3: um, injury, does that change your repair?
2: Definitely the blast injury or shotgun injury. Because so, I really want to see above and below that uh, injury, evaluate thoroughly those vessels. If there is a scenario where one would probably consider a posterior approach to the popliteal fossa, it would be on a blunt mechanism or potentially an isolated stab in the popliteal fossa. And just to review the borders of the popliteal fossa, it's the uh, semimembranosus, the biceps femoris, the gastrocnemius, uh, both medial and lateral heads. And that just, if it's right in that area with a stab wound that could be maybe simply repaired simply with uh, a few sutures or a blunt injury, that would be consideration for a posterior approach. I think one just has to be careful about proning a trauma patient and potentially limited exposure.
1: I was thinking about um, you had, when you and I talked about doing this trauma cast together, you had mentioned that you had a pseudoaneurysm who had some shock, but it may or may not be clear. Could you uh, refresh that case for everybody and, and let us know what
2: you did? Sure. Actually, there are a few scenarios that are related to traumatic that, uh So it could be a groin common femoral artery pseudoaneurysm. a patient who had a catheterization a, a few days prior and came in with a pulsating palpable groin mass and was in shock and clearly pale, diaphoretic, and disoriented and needed operative intervention. And that is Again, following the principles of vascular trauma and getting proximal and distal control after making a longitudinal incision over the groin and isolating out the vessels. And then it's amazing that it's, it's a relatively small hole usually, but it just ends up and uh, me- needing just a few sutures to repair it. However, it's much different than managing a pseudoaneurysm that one may see in uh, an AV fistula or uh, an elective vascular surgery practice. I think that the other two scenarios that come up sometimes in trauma are penetrating injuries, usually from gunshot wounds to the extremities, maybe to the forearm or to the leg, and they have equal pulses. The patient then shows up in clinic and they have a pulsatile mass in their forearm or they're continuing to bleed from their leg. Uh, I think those are, again, need to be explored or evaluated usually with an angiogram to uh, identify exactly where it is if it's non-compressible, and then surgical intervention, which is much different than like, the vascular elective practice of ultrasound and pressure or thrombin injection. These traumatic pseudoaneurysms in those scenarios are just usually not amenable to that approach. Uh, especially if there's skin changes, if it's pulsatile, if it's wide-necked, and and obviously if it's in um, a patient who's in shock.
0: I had a a young man come in with an isolated gunshot wound just above his knee. What is your thought process about ABIs? Would you have it done in the trauma bay, go straight to CTA, or rather go to the, the OR with angio?
2: So, if uh, does the a pa- hey, patient has an isolated gunshot wound above the knee, and I would evaluate the pulses mm-hmm. to determine if there is a pulse discrepancy. So, if there is a pulse discrepancy, let me phrase it: if there is absent pulse, then we're going to the operating room, and we'll just line up the holes. We have an, a pretty good idea where that injury is. If there is a pulse discrepancy, meaning, well, there's a pulse, but it just doesn't feel as easily palpable as the uninjured side, then I think a way to quantitate that is getting ankle brachial indices or ABIs. The formal way to do that is measuring both brachial artery blood pressures, taking the highest of the brachial artery pressure, and then getting the highest Uh, blood pressure in the ankle of the posterior tibial or the dorsalis pedis and also using a Doppler to determine when that pulse or that signal uh, comes back after the blood pressure cuff is inflated. And anything less than 0.9 really needs further imaging or uh, exploration.
1: You had mentioned it sounded like you put some emphasis on uh, penetrating trauma to the uh, upper leg. Is there a difference in your approach if you had a penetrating trauma to the lower leg?
2: So no, I would say it's, well, in the sense that the lower leg has three vessels. And so if there's one vessel injured and we have a normal pulse exam, even if one of those vessels is injured, whether it's partially there's a divot taken out of it, or if it's transected and thrombosed, there's still enough perfusion to the foot that no intervention is necessary. However, there could be a pseudoaneurysm that develops later. It goes back to what we originally, what we earlier talked about. And maybe that patient gets a fasciotomy and they just continue to bleed from their fasciotomy, can't figure out why. I would follow that up with an angiogram and uh, there's a pseudoaneurysm and then potentially either an endovascular intervention or surgery. If the endovascular Intervention can exclude that aneurysm, great. If not, it's going to need surgery to, to ligate that vessel and the pseudoaneurysm.
3: This is more of a surgical ICU case. We get vascular patients there who sometimes have had multiple interventions uh, by the vascular team in the past. And so if someone comes in uh, septic from an infected graft, I've had them uh, manage that in a variety of ways. And sometimes this patient has already had some care in the past, but if they are in the ICU and they're septic and we know that the infection is from a vascular graft, what is sort of the time frame in which that needs to be approached and what is the first step beyond routine sepsis care?
2: Goal-directed therapy with as far as sepsis management and source control needs to happen and so that infected graft needs to come out as soon as possible and let's just take the case maybe it's a fem fem bypass i think it's important to document the current uh, vascular exam and also if that conduit is patent i would say that it's likely occluded and it, the vascular exam in these patients is likely going to be abnormal but at least we know if they have pulses or signals and that vascular conduit that prosthetic has to come out to get source control and uh, for a couple reasons one uh, it is contributing to the overwhelming septic shock of the patient. And then also it's going to be a potential bleeding complication as there is going to be an anastomotic breakdown that uh, is going to lead to not only septic shock but hemorrhagic shock. We had one of these patients not too long ago who had exactly that, a fem-fem bypass with septic shock, actually blew out one of the femoral, common femoral anastomoses, and so that had to be addressed and repaired and then ended up, uh, but actually turned around quite well after multi-system organ dysfunction once the graft was out and the uh, high-level ICU care was administered.
3: So if this patient is sick in the middle of the night, you're taking them to the OR and explanting that graft as soon as possible?
2: As soon as possible, absolutely. Cleaning up that artery wherever that anastomosis is. Let's say it's the fem-fem, the breeding to to clean healthy artery, and then some sort of autogenous patch, preferably a vein patch.
3: And revascularization uh, typically is uh, going to be done in stages. going to be done extra anatomically. What's
2: your yeah, approach? Yeah, to- the. The revascularization is to be determined whether this patient actually needs it or not. I think that's where the initial vascular exam comes into play, because if the vascular exam is not changed and that conduit was occluded, then that patient may not necessarily... They have a lot of chronic changes and collaterals have developed. And so some sort of revascularization down the road can be reconsidered. But if there are no threatened extremities, at the present in the current state, shock state, that revascularization can wait. Because imagine if the patient has bacteremia and then placing another graft is just another source of potential infection.
1: So David, do you have any cases that uh, you were thinking about for this trauma cast you'd like to present?
2: Oh, yeah, it was a uh, A AFib patient who embolized to their SFA Profunda and then had an ischemic foot. I think that one of the things that's important about this, this scenario is the patient has a, is a smoker, does have an arrhythmia, has a reason for an embolic phenomenon, and ends up embolizing to the common femoral artery, including the SFA and the profunda. There's a clear pulse discrepancy, and the patient has some pain. That would probably fall potentially under an acute care surgeon, definitely have asked for a vascular surgery, but being able to manage that uh, embolus and knowing which way to make the arteriotomy in the common femoral artery. A classic way for, in this case, would be a, uh, a transverse arteriotomy and evacuate the clot, uh, regionalized heparin, and then completion angiogram, also embolectomy and completion angiogram to make sure that there isn't anything that has uh, any embolus that has gone distally.
1: This used to be one of my favorite cases whenever I did vascular, we had a heavy vascular residency, and this is my favorite case. If we could set up a CFA uh, embolectomy clinic, and I could just do that all day long, I would.
2: It is, it is a very satisfying case, especially when the, when the clot is still there. (laughs) And the uh, removing it and restoring the pulse, it is a very satisfying case.
1: Yeah, that little little Foley, Fogarty balloon, digging it down, and all that clot that comes out, is extremely satisfying. And then you save somebody's leg, which uh, I think they're quite appreciative for.
2: Yes, absolutely. And, it, and the other thing is that if we go through the scenario and the clot's not there, and then get an angiogram, and maybe it's distal, and it's in the popliteal, and then obviously just extracting it with embolectomy, uh, balloon Fogarty balloons, and if there is still clot in that area then the next step is to make a cut down infra uh, below the knee expose the below the knee popliteal artery and then be able to pass a catheter into the anterior tibial artery the peroneal and the posterior tibial eighty some percent of the time an embolectomy catheter or fogarty balloon from the femoral artery is going to pass into the peroneal so If that clot is dislodged and it's gone into the posterior tibial AT, we're unlikely to retrieve it with a Fogarty balloon from the femoral artery. So it's going to need another cut down to extract that balloon or accept that uh, embolus.
1: Do you remember the case you mentioned um, in an email about lower extremity pulse discrepancy after an MVC ejection?
2: Yeah, the patient had a obvious sign of a soft tissue injury to their left uh, distal thigh and a pulse discrepancy. There was a pulse, but it just wasn't as normal as the other one. There was an ABI abnormality, and the patient had a CTA that showed a distal SFA proximal popliteal injury. There was also associated soft tissue air, and actually had transfected their sartorius and uh, injured their quadriceps and actually had circumferential intimal injury to the above knee pop, distal SFA above knee pop, right at Hunter's Canal. That was, we opened up the artery of, over the area of thrombus that was visible and palpable. The intima was circumferentially disrupted, so that area was resected, reverse greater saphenous vein placed and an interposition. Reverse greater saphenous vein, and the vein was inspected, and it was intact. And it actually seemed like it got pinched right at the hunter's right at Hunter's canal, from a blunt mechanism injection. Interesting.
1: It worked. Your uh, your graft worked, and the patient did okay.
2: It did.
3: So this is a pretty common scenario, um, especially uh, in the surgical ICU. But we have a patient who has a pick line for uh, some number of days, and then we uh, find some reason to get an extremity ultrasound and they have an upper extremity DVT associated with the PIC. Um, Are you an advocate for absolutely pulling the PIC line? Do we continue to use it? Does that patient get anticoagulated for some amount of time?
2: So yeah, yes, I would pull it. It's a line associated thrombus and um, yes to the anticoagulation. So, I feel like
1: when I pull it, like I'm imagining, like wiping the rest of the batter off of a spoon. If <laughs> when I pull the line up, but now a <laughs> clot that then is sitting in my vein It's going to fly towards the heart and give me a, a massive PE. Yeah, uh,
2: I would I would pull it and anticoagulate.
1: So,
3: a pick line in the brachial vein with an associated clot, you would pull that that line and not use it. Is that correct, David?
2: I would I would pull the line, yes, and anticoagulate. Okay. For associated oh. DBT.
0: is there any uh, situation that you would just anticoagulate it through it, especially with some of our patients in the ICU who have very poor vascular access?
2: If that's the case, yes. Sometimes we have to treat through it, and I would do exactly that: anticoagulate, keep the line if we have limited vascular access. But if I, if we had the, if we were able to remove it, then I would remove it. And anticoagulate.
1: That's my favorite trick. I pull it out of one arm, anticoagulate, and then ask the pick team to come back and put one in the other arm. They say no, he's anticoagulated. <laughs> uh, we've yeah. gone through quite a few scenarios. Are, are there any other scenarios or, or questions that you guys can think of for David? Oh, uh, we—you had mentioned
3: something about a pick line in the artery, David. So what's what's the approach with that? Blame the so, pick nurse, of course.
2: <laughs> yeah. No. Imagine the scenarios. The pick line is being placed and it goes in an artery, and then there's a perclosure done on the artery, and then now there's a pulse discrepancy. So what likely happened is the perclose device, which isn't really designed for upper extremity work, uh, has crumpled up the brachial artery and caused an occlusion, or at least a significant stenosis. So, I think in this, I would say in this situation, uh, ideally leave the line in place and we can take that out in a uh, controlled fashion without uh, perclosure. Now, if the perclosure has already been placed, well, then uh, that's going to be a cut down on the brachial artery in the uh, bicipital groove, identifying the abnormality in the artery, and then Different than the common femoral artery cut down and transverse arteriotomy for the embolus, I would make a longitudinal incision or arteriotomy in the brachial artery, evaluate the intima, remove the perclose device, and then do a vein patch to maintain patency of that brachial artery.
1: Is the difference longitudinal? Longitudinal versus transverse, because in the femoral scenario, it's a clot, but in the brachial scenario, you actually have an injury from a device. that you need to get better
3: Well, we have an injury
2: from a device that we need to, we, we have an injury to the artery, and I really want to be able to see circumferentially what the extent of the injury, fully evaluate the intima. In the situation where I'm making an arteriotomy for an embolus, I'd usually make that in a transverse fashion, as long as the artery is soft and uh, feels normal to, ex- to pass the Fogartese and extract the clot. If there is a clot or an injury to the artery where I really want to circumferentially evaluate and make a longitudinal incision, get much better visualization, and then plan to close that with a patch, because closing that longitudinal arteriotomy primarily is going to lead to a segment of stenosis.
1: And what's your ideal vein patch for the upper
2: arm? uh, For the upper arm, I would take just a local, one of the duplicate veins that are in the upper extremity. It uh, might be basilic. I can easily access that. It's pretty close to the brachial artery or the cephalic, especially in somebody who's obese. And that way you stay out of the groin Mm -hmm. and uh, potential groin complication. And this is a very small, this would be a very small patch. And that's also another option if the if the extremities are not an option for a greater saphenous vein, uh, basilic vein can be used as an, a conduit uh, in place of the greater saphenous vein. Although the greater saphenous vein is still the gold standard.
1: Thank you for joining us again. I can't Here, tell you how helpful no, it's it is. Great. Yeah, it's great. We don't do this that often, but we all are in that situation where we have these vascular uh, injuries or scenarios in the ICU and. And it's hard at two o'clock in the morning. So I hope that the trauma cast can be a resource uh, for our listeners to listen to and kind of put this in the back of their minds. So when it happens, you're like, I got this. I listened to David. We're good.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, I appreciate this. I like talking, talking with you guys about it and talking through it. You know, I'm also in a unique situation. Not only one do I have an, I've had an interest in vascular for ever since I was a, a resident and I am fortunate that where we are, at UF Health in Jacksonville. Um, although I'm not a card carrying vascular surgeon, I've, I've just continued to do vascular injury. And so, uh, so all the vascular trauma when I'm on call, I just take care of it. And I, I thank my resident, those that trained me in residency and all the faculty that trained me at shock trauma that I felt comfortable doing that when I graduated. And I'm actually on the vascular call pool So some of these that are non-trauma related, these are cases that I've had throughout my, you know, the past few years or so and are not trauma, but they're, hey, somebody's got a call vascular and I happen to be on call. So it's been fortunate. It's allowed me to practice, really expand my practice as an acute care surgeon.
1: That sounds great. Aditi, welcome back. Lucy, you did great. Thank you for joining us for the TraumaCast. Everyone have a great evening and uh, I'm going to get dressed and head back to work.
2: All right. Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you. That was great. Right. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the EAST Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, professional education, Network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to
0: the east.